How is everybody? Good, good. <laughs> Jacob just said, hey, girl. I'm, I'm hoping that was for someone else. Uh, <laughs> hey, if you guys never been to the church before, um, I know how much you guys love, those of you who do come to the church, I know how much you guys love my, fam- my uh, funny anecdotes at the beginning, uh, but we have a, <laughs> yeah, no one said anything at the nine either, so obviously you don't, but um, we have a lot of ground to cover today, so I'm just going to go to the Word of God because that seems to be the safe place for us to go rather than my funny anecdotes, but um, stop it. That's fake. That's fake. <laughs> Someone at the nine o'clock said uh, they yelled out, afraid not, and if you weren't here for that joke, uh, you should go back in our archives because uh, it's well worth your time. But anyways, um, we are in the book of Acts. If you've never been to this church before, this is what we do go through whole books of the Bible. We work through them literally, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Now, the book of Acts is unique. It's a very, very interesting book of the Bible. It comes after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's the fifth book of the New Testament. And what it is, it is, it is it a, it's a, a group of men and women who had spent a lot of time with Jesus while he was on earth. They were listening to his teachings. They were following him around as he did his ministry. And after his death, burial, and resurrection, these men and women take the teachings of Jesus and they start to apply those teachings in their community. It's that simple, that's what Acts is about. So we see that it's not just within their community, it starts in Jerusalem, but as Acts goes on, we see that it starts to go outside of just one city and starts going to outside cities, and eventually it's gonna become a a global thing. And as we're gonna see today, it's even gonna reach other continents, it's gonna start to go across and become a, a worldwide phenomenon, if you will. Okay, so last week, We've been building up, and uh, we got halfway through chapter 8, and just to catch up real quick, the church has started, it has grown extremely fast, there's been opposition to the church, we meet a young man named Saul, who was a very educated Jewish rabbi who persecuted the church, he killed one of the followers of Jesus, a guy named Stephen, and that started just a, a, a very, uh, uh, very outspoken, very clear persecution against the followers of Jesus. We get to meet an interesting character last week, a guy named Simon the Magician, who as the church is kind of catching traction in North Israel in an area called Samaria, there's a guy named Philip is up there doing a bunch of work. Peter and John go up there. They're kind of the big dogs, some of the big dogs of the faith. And they go up there and they encounter a guy who in our day and age we would have called a Satanist. He was an occultist and was very well known for the powerful things he could do. He encounters the followers of Jesus and sees the power of the Holy Spirit, and he offers to buy that, the ability to have this power. And Peter and and, and John kind of put him in his place a little bit, and this interesting scenario that goes on. But we talked about this last week. We talked about that sometimes there is opposition, sometimes there is pressure, sometimes there's tension in our lives, and we typically think it's some kind of evil thing or that it's the devil doing it, but sometimes that tension is there because God wants it to be there. That there's this um, weight on us, there is this uh, sometimes uncomfortableness on us, and that's a God thing, not necessarily an evil thing. And we talked about sometimes God has to push us, sometimes even Things that we perceive to be bad things have to happen to us in order to shove us out of our comfort zone and get us to be exactly where God wants us to be, all right? That's what we talked about last week. Now, this week, we're going to finish up chapter 8. We're going to work our way about halfway through chapter 9, 
And we're going to throw out a couple of churchy words this weekend. And the big one that we're going to talk about is the word sanctification, which simply means, very, very simple, are we set apart for God to use us? That's what sanctification means. Have we lived a life that is separate from the ways of the world so God can use us and do something with us? That's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. Okay, so if you have a Bible, we're in the fifth book of the New Testament. We're in the eighth chapter, starting at the 26th verse. We're going to go back and talk about this guy, Philip, a little bit more and meet yet another character, an Ethiopian eunuch, right? And so if you have a Bible, fifth chapter, if you don't, if you have a note sheet that we handed out at the front, it has everything I'm going to say in it. If you don't have that, if you have a smartphone, the Version app, if you click on the bottom right button and click on more or events, I can't remember, our church will pop up. And if you don't have a smartphone, then you probably teleported from 1993. So uh, anyways... <laughs> Let's get started. Let me pray, and, uh, and we will see, uh, we'll see what we'll learn today. should be interesting. Lord God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. God, pray, Lord, that you keep your hand on us today. Uh, for all the believers in this room, I pray, God, that you teach us something new, that we're open-minded and that we learn something, God, and that you take us to a, a deeper level with you today. God, if there's any non-believers in the room or any visitors, Lord, who are maybe on the fence about this, we pray, God, that they feel welcomed, Lord, that something is said today that intrigues them and captures their attention. Father, Lord, we pray for every church in our community. God, we pray for every nonprofit in our community. Lord, this time of year as it gets colder, we pray for all of our homeless brothers and sisters who may not have a roof over their head. God, we pray, Lord, that you protect them and that we can find means, Lord Jesus, to get them out of that weather. Lord, we love you and we lift you up and we thank you, God. And uh, Lord, we do all this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so chapter 8 of Acts, starting in verse 26. I'm going to read a, little, read a little bit, and I'll go back and break it down. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So we got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. And when Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture the Ethiopian was reading was this. This is from Isaiah. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch replied to Philip, I ask you, who's this prophet talking about, himself or another person? So Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus beginning from that scripture. Okay, so as Peter and John, right, there's all these different stories going on, different people in different areas, but they all kind of intertwine. As Peter and John are in North Israel, Philip finds himself in Southwest Israel in an area called Gaza. He went to this area because God told him to go to this area. An angel of the Lord said, go to this area. 
Now, we need to be careful not to miss the symbolism here. Oftentimes, God tells us to go places that we don't want to go, and we're like, God, why are you doing this? Now, Gaza was not like a hip, cool area, right? This was a wasteland. It was dry. It was desolate. But Philip didn't argue with God. God, this isn't the coolest place to go. He obeyed God because that's the area that God needed him to be in. So he went because he was obedient. Now, the land itself is not the, it, it's not the focus here. That's not what we're concerned with, right? Again, this is a wasteland. It's just a bunch of, of sand, right? But he goes down to this area because in this dry, desolate area, an Ethiopian eunuch is going to be traveling through and God wants Philip to meet this man. Now, this man is fascinating. If you've been to any of our baptism services, I used to teach from this all the time at our baptism services. The Ethiopian eunuch would have been an extremely intelligent man, a very powerful man, one of the most powerful men of his entire country. He would have been educated. He would have been affluential. He would have been very wealthy. All of these different things. So he was a very unique individual. The fact that it mentions he was a eunuch means that he was physically altered to, to be obedient to his queen. So there was a lot of stuff going on. A very fascinating character. The most fascinating characteristic about this man, though, is he was converting to Judaism, that he was actually in Jerusalem worshiping at that time, and he was traveling back to Ethiopia from Jerusalem. Now, what's important to note is this, because he was a eunuch, and I'm not going to go into what that means, but because he was a eunuch, he could not fully participate in temple worship. So no matter how dedicated he was, Judaism would never completely accept this man. They just wouldn't. Okay? Because he had been altered, he looked differently uh, in a lot of different ways. They would never fully accept him. So on his way home, he's reading the Bible. This guy genuinely wants to know more about God. And so as Philip is hanging out in the middle of the desert, probably going, God, why in the heck am I out here, right? This Ethiopian eunuch goes by slowly. It was an ox-drawn chariot, so it would have been going very, very slowly. So this ox-drawn chariot is slowly going by, and as it's going by, Philip hears this man reading from Isaiah 53. Now, Isaiah 53 is specifically about Jesus. And here's what we learn. If Christians ever tell you that the Old Testament is not important, that's very immature. That's a very immature thing to say from a Christian. The entire Old Testament, and one of the themes of Acts, is to find Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures. And he's all throughout it, beginning in chapter 3 of Genesis, when God talks about that he will send one uh, to, to eventually step on the head of the enemy. He was talking about Jesus. So threaded all throughout the Old Testament is this arrow that is pointing towards the Savior, the Messiah. And he is key to understanding the Old Testament. So this specific book of the Bible, Isaiah, in this specific chapter, chapter 53, is not only talking about Jesus, it's talking about specifically the crucifixion of Jesus. So this Ethiopian longed to know God, this is also important, but he was unsatisfied with just religious practice, and he was unsatisfied with a religion that would never fully accept him or fully show him grace. So as he's studying and he's reading about this, this guy that he doesn't know exactly who it is, but someone that's been prophesied about, along comes a follower of Jesus to meet him in the middle of the desert. So again, the Old Testament teaches us a lot of things. And one of the things it teaches us is that religious practice never fully satisfies. 
Not that there's anything wrong with doing some religious practice, but religious practice is incomplete if we do not have a relationship with God. And so in comes Philip to teach this man and to show this man how he can have a personal relationship with God. So Philip, the one we're talking about, there's two Philips. There's probably more than two Philips, but there's two Philips that we're going to talk about. One was one of the original 12 followers of Jesus that was called Philip the Apostle. The other Philip is this Philip, Philip the Evangelist. Now, he wasn't with the original 12, so he never heard Jesus say Isaiah 53 straight from his mouth, right? He didn't learn the teachings of Jesus directly from Jesus. So what we learn from that is this. Having not heard the gospel straight from Jesus' mouth, Philip the evangelist had to, this is going to blow your mind, Christians, he had to study the teachings of Jesus so he could accurately tell other people the teachings of Jesus. So what we learn is this. If we're going to explain the gospel to people, we have to read the gospel. We have to know the word of God, not backwards and forwards, but we have to at least know the basic tenets of our faith, the basic teachings of Christ in order to share them with others. We have to work at it a little bit. And that leads us to even a bigger question. If we were Philip and we found ourselves in the middle of a desert and a guy comes strolling by reading Isaiah 53, and if he asked, what is this about? Can we give a good answer? Peter, right, the first leader of the Christian movement, Peter, writes in one of his contributions to the New Testament, he says that all of us, not just pastors, not just worship leaders or student pastors or people on staff at a church, all people who follow Jesus should be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks why we have the hope in us. And so what that means is, Philip could not have been effective for God unless he had prepared on the front end, unless he had studied before the question. So we have to ask ourselves, you and I, if we're in Starbucks or we're at a bus stop or if we're at a restaurant or if we're at MTSU or at our job or whatever the case may be, and someone walks up and says, you know, I keep hearing this thing, the gospel, what is that? Can you tell them? Can you tell them what the gospel is? Can you tell them why you believe what you do? Corey, why don't you go to a Baha'i gathering or why aren't you like a universalist or a Unitarian or why don't you prescribe or, or subscribe to, to Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam or why Christianity, why Jesus exclusively? What do you say to that? I, I don't know, my parents did, you know? Like, well, what do you say to that? What is your response? And the Bible says you need to be ready to give a response, not after the fact, but before the fact. And so we often wonder why Christianity is not very effective in our culture. And I would argue it's because we've invested very little about knowing about our own faith. That we haven't invested much in it. Therefore, it's very hard for us to be effective in the world around us. Okay? All right. Here's where it gets fun. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the Ethiopian replied, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Then he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer. But he went on his way rejoicing, and Philip appeared in Azotus, and he was traveling and evangelizing 
all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, there's an interesting thing in here that I'll get to here in a second. But as Philip was talking to the Ethiopian eunuch, apparently as he was teaching him the gospel, the life and teachings of Jesus, he came to the point to where Jesus was baptized before he started his ministry. So here's the thing. We see in this conversation that Philip, Philip clearly understood that baptism follows belief. That if one says they believe in Jesus, the response after that is they get baptized. Philip also understood the proper way to baptize someone. We know that because the Greek word says baptismo, which means to completely submerge in water. And also when it says that the unit came out of water, to come out of water, one must go into water. That's pretty easy. And so what we learn, and you've heard me teach this before, baptism is not salvation. Baptism is a response to salvation. And that's an important lesson to learn because what we learn is this. If we say we believe, belief always garners an action. Belief always garners a response. If I say I believe something, I act on that belief. And we see that with baptism after true belief in Jesus Christ. And so not only was this outsider, the Ethiopian, chopping at the bit, right? This guy wanted to do exactly what Jesus did. Jesus was baptized and he told John the Baptist, this is the way I want it to be now. The Ethiopian heard this and he said, well, I wanna get baptized. Look, there's some water, Philip. Look, like, can we do this? And the reason why he asked that was two reasons. One, he wanted to be obedient to Jesus. Can I be obedient to Jesus now? I believe. The second reason why I find very, very intriguing, this Ethiopian had never been fully accepted by his faith. He had believed in Judaism, but he was never fully accepted to that. He was a black, non-Jewish eunuch. So the fact that maybe, just possibly, these followers of Jesus would have me be a part of their family, right? That God would fully accept me if I'm obedient to him. So we learn this. Obedience and acceptance are trademarks of Jesus that anyone who is willing to submit to Jesus's process has room at God's table. Now, whenever people say everyone has room at God's table, not true. Only those who are willing to submit themselves to Jesus Christ have a place at his table. But all who are willing to do that, come on, you're welcome. Doesn't matter your skin color, doesn't matter your past, doesn't matter what you've done or what mistakes you've made. As long as we are willing to submit to the process of Jesus Christ, all are welcome, right? And so that intrigued him and it excited him. So here's where it gets all Star Trek-y, right? It gets a little weird right here, right? And so, and it's easy to miss if you're not careful. So this is what Luke records. Luke records that Philip baptizes this Ethiopian and as he's coming up out of the water, it says the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. He disappeared. So in my very logical mind, I'm like, okay, there's gotta be an explanation for this. And so I research it like crazy and I look it up. And the Greek word there simply means that he suddenly disappeared. <laughs> he was gone, right? He went under, comes up, the Ethiopian's by himself. He's probably like, yeah, that was awesome. Hey, you know, where'd he go, right? He's gone. And so Philip is transported to a city about 45 miles away. And in my opinion, this is one of the most fascinating miracles in the entire Bible. He just transports to another area and starts rock and rolling in this other area along the coast, right? Just amazing to me. And so the Ethiopian is just like, he's like, he's loving it, right? He, he is just loving what has happened. And this is another thing that we can miss if we're not careful. 
The Ethiopian wasn't rejoicing because of a parlor trick that the disciple pulled, right? He disappeared. Oh, yay, that was awesome. The Ethiopian was rejoicing because the Holy Spirit just changed his life because the power of God had just affected him. So let's look at Philip's resume so far, right? This young guy's like killing it. He goes up to the north, right? And all the central Israelites hated the northern Israelites, the hated Samaritans. Well, Philip goes up there and starts spreading the gospel and it takes off like wildfire, right? People are getting healed. People are getting demons cast out of them. They're getting baptized. It's going great. Then he goes down south, meets an African Gentile that should have never been welcomed into the faith, right? And so he meets this guy, and this guy finds out that God accepts all people who, who give their life to Christ and changes his life. And look at what happens right here. This Ethiopian eunuch is about to go into a completely different continent and take the gospel. Look at what's happening. It is starting to become a global thing. Now it's not just in the Middle East, it's going to go into Ethiopia, into Africa, and we don't know how big of an impact this very powerful man had in that area. And so then Philip shoots up over to this area, Azatos, and he goes to this area and he's gonna start working his way up north, back to Caesarea where he's gonna put down his roots and that's gonna be until he dies. That's where he's gonna be, right? So this guy's done a lot of stuff. Okay, so we jump around, right, as this awesome stuff is going on. Meanwhile, we're going to see what the bad guy's up to. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested a letter from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Get up and go to the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Then Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand, and they led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days, and he did not eat or drink. So again, as we hear all this awesome stuff about Philip, Luke says, meanwhile, as all this great stuff is going on, we have Saul, who was out wreaking havoc, on the church, and he's oppressing people, and now he has gotten permission from the high priest, the most powerful person in Israel, to go to neighboring cities and start getting men and women and imprisoning them and bringing them back to Jerusalem. So the reason he was going to Damascus is Damascus was kind of a booming metropolis, right? It was kind of an up-and-coming, booming city, and a lot of Christians would have more than likely fled to that city. So he says, I'm gonna start there. It's about a six-day trip, but I know there's a bunch of uh, followers of Jesus there, so I'm gonna head that way. Now, followers of Jesus were not called Christians yet. It's gonna happen in a couple of chapters. Not yet, though. At this point, they are simply called the way. And they were called that because numerous times Jesus said, I am the way. So they called followers of Jesus the way. And Saul had a mission to round up all of the people of the way and bring them back to Jerusalem and throw them in jail. 
But what happens on the road to Damascus, guys, probably one of the biggest events in the entire Bible. One of the most important things that happens in the entire Bible is this scenario that takes place with Saul. On the road to Damascus, a light from heaven flashes all the way around him, knocks Saul off of his horse or donkey or whatever he's on. He falls to the ground. He hears a voice and the voice says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, when we say light, this would have been noonish, right? Noonish out in the wilderness. So there's no trees, there's nothing like that. So the, the, the sun would have been exceptionally bright, exceptionally hot. So whatever this light was, it was so bright that it outshone the literal sun, knocked him down onto the ground. He heard this voice and a rabbi would have automatically associated a voice like that to the voice of God. Other rabbis had heard it. He was a very intelligent, trained rabbi, and he would have instantly thought, because he couldn't see at this point, he was blinded for a second, right? Here's this voice, this is God. God is speaking to me. And the voice that Saul and the others heard asked him directly, why are you persecuting me? Now, this would have confused Saul. He's like, wait a second. If this is the voice of God, I'm doing what God would want me to do. I'm taking care of all the people that say that Jesus is God who are blaspheming God. So in his confusion, he asks the voice, he says, who are you? Who are you, Lord? And when he says Lord there, he doesn't mean God or Jesus, he means sir. Who are you, sir? Who, who is this that's telling me this? I'm confused. And then it gets extremely confusing. The voice says, it's Jesus. I'm the one you've been persecuting. Now Saul thought the worst thing that anyone could ever do was claim that Jesus was the risen son of God. That's why he was on this mission to exterminate all the followers of Jesus because Saul thought this was blasphemous. Now he comes to the conclusion, he comes to the reality that everything he thought was wrong and everything that these followers of Jesus said was true. His whole world was crashing down on him. No wonder he didn't speak or didn't have time to speak, it says, because he was probably speechless. He was dumbfounded. So the voice of Jesus continues and says, Saul, I want you to go to the city and I want you to wait for further instruction. I'm gonna tell you what to do when you get there. So Saul just had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Now Saul's about to have a new faith. Saul's about to have a completely different interpretation of all the scripture he's been studying his whole life. He's about to have a new identity, a new perspective. He's about to have a new mission and a purpose. And that brings us to this, guys. If anyone has a true encounter with Jesus, you will never be the same. Even if you deny him, because some people have an encounter with Jesus and they say no, and if you do that, you will also be forever altered in a negative way. But if we have a true encounter with God, we are not left the same. Let me get rude here for a second. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you live the same lifestyle that you did five years ago, something's not firing correctly. We should be constantly made more and more into the image of Jesus Christ because when we have a relationship with him, we get more and more like him. We, we draw closer to him and we change more and more and more. Now, that's a different process for all of us. We go through that at different speeds. Some of us grow quicker into the likeness of God than others. That's okay. But the point still remains the same, that Jesus does not leave us the way he finds us. We change, we change. And so this ruthless persecutor 
becomes blinded by the light of God and he's unable to ingest food or water for three days. Listen, guys, think about it. Not only is everything that you thought to be true wrong, right? That would have been enough right there. Not only that, this person had killed people for his beliefs. So the reason he couldn't eat or drink for three days is he was probably nauseous from the regret, bothered by what he had done. But here's what we learned from this, guys. This is huge. We cannot be used by God unless we are broken by God. We cannot be made into his image until our image has been broken down and he builds us back up into his. Now, this makes very, very little sense to the world. It might make a little bit more sense to you who've been in the military. Veterans Day is coming up. When we talk about the military, my father-in-law, who's a sergeant major, I have to tell you stories about him sometime. I was a punk kid when I met my wife. I was 17. I showed up to her house before the days of GPS, 40 minutes late for our first date. And Sergeant Major Donato D'Onofrio opens the door. That's my father-in-law. And I'm like, oh crap, what have I done, right? We're good now. We're very, very tight. Anyways, that's my military story. So in order to reach our full potential, just like they do in the military, we must be broken down so we can be built up. We must be broken down so the master, the artist, the creator, God can build us into what he wants us to be. We must be broken by God. Okay, next part. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, different Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he said. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, obviously a different Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he's praying there. In a vision, Saul has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so he can regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all those who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias left and entered the house. Then he placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who has appeared to you on the road you are traveling, has sent me so that you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So at the same time that God was speaking to Saul, he was also speaking to a man named Ananias who was in Damascus. And he told Ananias, hey, I want you to go find Saul. I want you to pray for him because he's blind right now and he's gonna regain his sight. Now, it's probably because I have a degree in literature and I look too much into words like this, but I find it interesting that instead of God taking him back to Jerusalem where he would have stood in front of all of his peers, right? Now wrecked by Jesus. Jesus takes him to a humble little town on a street called Straight Street. All throughout the gospel, we know that we are on the straight and narrow, that there is one way to God, and here he finds himself being prayed for 
on Straight Street. I just find that fascinating. And so unlike when the big guns are brought in, right? Peter and John aren't called this time. The original apostles, they're not coming up to help with this. We have this very obscure character that we, know, we don't know much about him, a guy named Ananias, who is gonna come in, lay his hands on Saul, who's eventually gonna become the apostle Paul, and pray for him. And what we learn is a very important lesson that, that, that you guys need to hear. It's not just the professionals or the pastors or the ones who you know, get money for doing this as an occupation. All followers of Jesus are called to be used for his kingdom. All followers of Jesus are called to be used for his kingdom because God is not in the business of just religious, religious ritual. And I'm not trying to be a jerk here. If you're struggling with something, if you're struggling with an issue, if you need, if you need prayer, if you need some, something to happen in your life because you're bound by something, no disrespect. I have no disrespect for Anglicans or Catholics or Lutherans or any of that. Many good friends in those different sects of Christianity. Nothing wrong with that. But you do not need someone to throw holy water on you or say something special or go through some ritual for you to be touched by God. You can do that directly. You have access to the Holy Spirit and access to God. God is not in the business of religious ritual. You don't need to travel across country so some guy can breathe on you or hit you on the head or something silly like that or have some celebrity like, you know, like touch you or whatever. You don't need that. God is concerned with restoration, holiness, and he is concerned with sanctification. He is also concerned that we have a one-on-one -on -one personal relationship with him. We have access to the Father. We don't have to go through some kind of crazy rigmarole to have access to God. And so here's another thing. Ananias was scared. God says, hey, go find this guy Saul and pray for him. And Ananias is like, that name sounds familiar. Isn't he the guy killing people like me, right? And so Ananias is like, God, are you sure about this? And so here's the thing. We can easily criticize people when they get scared. You know, people throw up the scripture, fear is not a spirit given to us by God, but, a, but we're to have a spirit of sound mind and strength. And I believe that. That's right. That's right. We are not to be debilitated by fear. We're not to live in a state of perpetual and continual fear. I get that. But God is not against us. And you notice Jesus does not rebuke Ananias when he says, you're asking me to pray for a terrorist? Jesus doesn't rebuke him for that, for his fear. Luke, the author of Acts, does not rebuke him. The problem is God knows that we're gonna get intimidated. God knows that we're gonna be afraid sometimes. And that is fine as long as our fear doesn't paralyze us or hinder us from doing the work of the Lord. Let me give you an example, practical example. About five years ago, there was a gentleman who came to this church off and on who murdered his wife, choked and beat his wife to death. Big old guy, much bigger than me. About 12 hours after, not even a full day after he had done this, I was called in because he came to church here off and on, and I was put in a cell with him by ourselves. No one else in the room, right? When I prayed, I prayed with my eyes open, right? Because I was afraid. It was scary. This is a murderer. This is someone who killed his wife. If you're going to kill your wife, I mean, you probably have no problem killing me. And so I'm sitting in this room, and I was afraid. Did it debilitate me? Did it stop me from doing what the Lord wanted me to do? No. And do I think Jesus looked down and said, Corey, you're going to go to hell now. You know, like, no, I don't think that was it. God understands that we're going to be afraid, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit, we push through that fear and we don't live in that fear and we continue to do what the Lord wants us to do, right? And we grow. 
So verse 15, and again, I'm not trying to make more of it than what it is. If you're reading the entire Bible, there is a monumental shift in the Bible in verse 15 of chapter 9 of Acts. And here's where the shift takes place. Because of obedience, the New Testament narrative shifts because God told a guy named Ananias, go and pray for this person. And then God told Saul to receive that prayer. And because of that obedience, God had chosen the most unlikely person in the world to spread the gospel to kings and Caesars and non-Jewish people and even Jewish people. And this guy that Ananias is going to pray for wrote 70% of your New Testament. A massive shift takes place because two men, one goes, one receives, and they are obedient to the instruction of Jesus. And Ananias, though he's afraid, he believes in the words of Jesus. And right when he walks in and sees the terrorist Saul, how does he refer to him? Ananias says, I'm here to pray for you, brother Saul. You're about to be one of us, and I trust that God's going to do it, right? And so he walks in and prays for him. So look at how many times the word obey comes up here. Saul obeyed the command to go into Damascus and wait after Jesus knocked him on his butt. Ananias obeyed and met with Saul to pray for him, even though he was afraid. Saul obeyed the commands to be baptized after his conversion. So because of this obedience, Saul regains his sight, he regains his strength, and now the, the world would be forever changed and altered because of these two men being obedient to God. Again, not just 70% of your New Testament, but most of our Christian doctrine was given from God to the Apostle Paul to write down. Corinthians and Romans and Ephesians and Galatians and so much Christian doctrine and theology comes through the pen of Saul. Everything is forever different because of this obedience. Now, let me see if I can walk this back a little bit. So one of the things we see in the scriptures that we've covered today is that belief is important. Belief is the launching pad. If we are to be followers of Jesus, Christians, it starts with belief, but it does not end with belief. And the biggest mistake of modern day Christianity is we think it ends with belief. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I believe. Okay, that's fantastic. That's like opening the door, right? That's like stepping on the track. That's like starting the car. It doesn't end there. It has just started there. Belief is where it begins. And true belief is not just believing that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. True belief believes that because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, we have the opportunity, we have the ability to stand before God as righteous and pure. Because if we ask for forgiveness in Jesus' name, because of what Christ did on the cross, we can be made a whole. We can be freed from sin's bondage, the book of Romans says in chapter 6, if I'm not mistaken. That we can live above that sinful lifestyle. That we are justified. It's a very churchy word, but it simply means that because of the cross, we can stand before God pure and righteous and clean. But again, it doesn't stop there. It continues on. Belief leads us to obedience. Look, my goal is not to preach damnation to you today. That's not what I want to do. But if I believe all the words of Jesus, if I believe what the gospel says, Jesus said that if I see a tree that doesn't produce fruit, it gets cut down and thrown into a fire. 
I don't think it takes a genius to put two and two together on there, the metaphor that he's making, right? So what I see if I believe all the words of Jesus is I believe that there are consequences to my actions, both positive and negative. And if I understand and believe the words of Jesus, I know that I must be obedient to Jesus if I'm ever gonna see the Father, if I'm ever gonna go to heaven, if I'm ever gonna be with you for eternity celebrating with God forever. So it shows me that belief leads to obedience. Belief leads to obedience in the word of God. It bleeds, uh, belief leads to obedience in my prayer life that I am to communicate with God, that I am to study the word of God. And then here's where we really break it down is that the words I find here, I am to apply to my personal life. So if this book says that sex before marriage is a sin, I don't give a rip what culture says. It's still a sin. And so I am to adjust my life to fit and obey the words of God. And so if we genuinely believe, we start to obey the teachings and the commands of Christ, and that belief leads us to obedience that leads us to do good works. Now listen, we don't do good works so we can have a, pi a picture of us holding a minority child in a foreign country and we can post it on Instagram. That's not why we do good works. I know that's why some people do good works, but that's not why a Christian does good works. We don't do good works so we can post it on Facebook and everyone can say, man, Corey's a good guy. He's a good guy. He doesn't just tithe, like he gives to like charities. What a good guy, right? We don't, we don't do good works to try to cover up all the evil things we've done in the past, right? We don't believe in karma. Christians don't believe in karma. I hope you don't believe in karma. The difference between karma and the grace of God is that when we ask for forgiveness, there's no bad still lurking there. It's completely obliterated. There's a big difference. So I don't do good things just to kind of overshadow all the bad that I've done in the past. Christians are called through obedience and through belief in Jesus Christ. We are called to good works that glorify God, edify the body, and help those around us. That's why we are called to do good things. So belief leads to obedience that leads to works. And belief and obedience prepare us to be used by God. And here's where sanctification, separation, being set apart so God can use us. Here's where it comes in. Here's where the rubber meets the road. We as followers of Jesus are called to not fall in to the selfish and destructive path of the world. Because here's the thing. If we live just like people who don't know Jesus, we're gonna get the results in our life and for eternity of people who don't know Jesus. Guys, I don't mean to be offensive here. Please, please don't be offended by this. I don't mean to be offensive. If we treat our spouse the way the world continually treats their spouses, we will have the same kind of divorce percentiles as the world does. Because the Bible says, wives respect your husbands, husband loves your wives like Jesus loves the church. And if we followed and were obedient to the word of God, we wouldn't get divorced in the same rate that the world gets divorced. And I don't mean that to be disrespectful or mean to you if you've been through a divorce. I'm a product of divorce. I'm a product, my parents were divorced and I don't hold it against them either. But what I'm saying is God has rules and God has guidelines and God has instructions for us. 
not because he hates us, but he wants us to be set apart for better results than the destructive paths of the world. The reason why there's parameters on sex, man, God is love. There's no parameters on sex. Listen, I got this goldfish that I love. I love this goldfish. This goldfish is in a bowl, right? Maybe even a big bowl. And he gets to swim around within this bowl. And I love this goldfish. Because I love this goldfish, I don't walk up to his confinement, shatter it, and let him go wild. Why? Because he would die. There is these parameters around my goldfish, not because I hate him, but because I want him to live the longest life and best life possible. That's why God has put parameters around you, because he knows promiscuous sex leads to HIV, leads to AIDS, leads to other STDs that will ruin your life. He knows that it will rain. He knows that looking at pornography leads to the degradation of women. He knows that children will be born that, don't, that, that, that have parents that don't care. And so therefore it affects everything within our culture. So these parameters are there not because God hates you, but because God is absolutely in love with you. And he knows more than you. So he sets these, he wants you to be set apart because God knows there's a better life and a better eternity if you will do it his way and not your way. He knows that. And we shake our fist at that. God, how dare you tell me that I need to be set apart. The Bible says you're to be peculiar. You're to be counter culture. You're to be a royal priesthood, a chosen generation is what the Bible says, that you are to live in a way that does not look like the destructive and selfish ways of the world. That means we talk differently than, than, than other people. That means we don't gossip like other people. That means that we treat people with respect. That means that we watch different things, listen to different things. That means that there are certain places we don't go. That means that every corner of our life looks more and more like the way Jesus wants us to live it and not the way culture tells us. Look at what's going on in Hollywood right now, right? We all aspire to be that. Look at that. We finally lift up, all the, lift up the hood and look what's happening. Look what's going on and we're shocked by it. We pump out movie after movie after movie about misogyny and harassment and sexual deviation. And we're like, oh my God, people are living this. And here we are, here we are. So you know this is coming. <laughs> Let's look at us, right? Let's look at us. Let me pause there after saying that all I just did, this rant that I just went on. Do you know that God loves you? I mean, seriously. Do you know that God loves you in such a manner that as the Roman centurions were nailing him to a hunk of wood, he looks up to the Father and says, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. And that as he got on that hunk of wood, do you know he knew of my sin? My sin. And he still got on it. And he hung on that piece of wood for nine hours before, as the old King James says, he gave up the ghost. He did that for me. He did that for you. Now listen, if we say that we even have a smidgen, a fraction of an understanding of how much God loves us, if we understand what God did for us, we should be humbled by that. That shouldn't be a gateway for us to live however we want. Man, Jesus died for my sins. I can go buck wild. Paul, the guy we talked about today, said, no, 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 no. We don't sin more so grace can abound more. No, God, no. That's what Paul said. When we start to understand the, the, the love, the depth of God's love, 
We should be humbled, and that should make us want to be obedient to this word. God, at the very least, we should want to pick it up and read it. If I were to ask most of you in this room, and I am not trying to be a jerk today, if I were to ask most of you in this room, tell me the Ten Commandments, most of you couldn't name all ten. I bet 85, 90% of you couldn't name all ten. Now, here's the thing, guys. How can we be obedient to the Word of God if we won't even pick up the Word of God and read it? If we can't even name the basic tenets of the Christian faith, of God's heart, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, by the way, if you want to read it tonight, that if we don't even know the Ten Commandments, the fundamentals, there's a problem. No reason. There's there's no, no wonder why we're so ineffective. Let me ask you this. Are you doing good works? Guys, I know your Facebook post is going to make every Republican a Democrat and every Democrat a Republican, and it's going to solve world hunger and cure racism and all that stuff. I know your Facebook post is going to change everything. Thank you for that Facebook post, right? I'm so sick of people pointing at problems and not doing a darn thing about it, right? Listen, your opinion means very little to me if all you do is point out what's wrong with everyone else. If you hate the fact that there's homeless people flying signs on all these corners in Murfreesboro, get involved in some good homeless ministry and let's do something. Let's love some people. Let's engage in some people's lives. Hey, offer them a job. Whether they take it or not, it's not your responsibility. You offered it. So instead of us continually pointing at the problem, guys, anyone can point at a problem. Anyone can point at a problem. Anybody, that's a problem. Okay, fantastic. What's the solution? What do we do? What do we do? So I ask you, are you doing good works? You can line your whole car in bumper stickers. You can get tattoos of every, I don't know, Mother Teresa quote or Gandhi quote you want. You can do all of these things. But until you're out engaging the problem and trying to work through it and help people, we're not doing works that glorify the kingdom of God. And you posting mean posts or whatever it is, is not a work. That is not changing anyone's heart. So I ask you this, if we're just going to be introspective and look at ourselves, if we're honest, 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 honest with ourselves, does the way I talk about other people look differently from all the other people who are gossiping at my work? Does the language I use Oh, Corey, I just, you know, I cuss, you know, I cuss quite a bit. It's just one of my things. The Bible says not to use profane language. You, you need to work on that. For it's going to be blunt. That how we talk, the Bible says blessings and cursings shouldn't come out of the same mouth. Do we talk differently than the world? Do we tell the same kind of jokes as the world? Do we feed our minds our, through our eyes and our ears the same garbage that the world ingests? Do we treat our wife the same as the world treats their wife, right? Come home, clock out, turn on the game, don't engage. And then we wonder why we have the same results as everyone else. Do we respect our husbands? Do we spend our time investing into our children? Are we empathetic? Do we look at people differently? Do we pray? Do we read? Are we engaged in Christian community? If we step back objectively and look at our lives, does it look any differently from those that do not know Jesus Christ? And if they don't look any differently, something is not connecting. And I guarantee you, I will bet everything on it. 
If we do not make ourselves sanctified, if we do not set ourselves apart, we will end up the same way that the rest of the world will end up, with broken homes, broken relationships, with just, just massive amounts of, of sadness and depression, and we will end up in all of these ways that we don't want to go, and that's not even to mention the eternal effects of our decisions. We have got to choose a different route. We've got to become a, a peculiar people. We've got to be counter culture. That's what Christ always was, always was. That's what he calls us to be. This is not to beat you up. This is not to make you feel bad. But I think it would, it would be good for all of us to step back and say, do I look differently than the rest of the world? Listen, and as we're on that note, I'm, I'm just going to be very straightforward with you. I get really upset, guys, when 75% of you rush out of here during communion, if you just want me to be honest. Listen, I know you got stuff to do. I know there's football games to watch and lunch to eat, and I, I know there's even important things to do, hang out with your family. I know all those things. It's not going to kill you to take 10 minutes and remember the fact that your Lord and Savior hung on a cross for nine hours for your sin. It's not going to kill you. Take a couple of minutes. Ask God to forgive you of your sin. Get the communion. I know there's a long line. Praise God that so many people are coming and worshiping today, right? I know, I know there may be a long line and it may be a little inconvenient, but at the risk of sounding like a jerk, guys, take this in remembrance of me, Jesus said, every time you get together. That's why we do that. Take a couple of minutes. If you need prayer for anything, there'll be elders of our church at the right and left. They, they pray for you for anything you have prayer requests for. Do not leave this room without just making sure you connect with Jesus. If you're in here and you're a visitor, please forgive me if I've been rude today or aggressive today. I hope you felt comfortable. I hope you felt welcomed. I hope you come back. If you have any questions, please let us know. Guys, let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, God, Father, I, I pray that in all of our lives, Lord, that you would point out to us things that have maybe separated us from you, things that have separated us from our, our spouses or our kids or our friends or, God, things that have, have convoluted our relationship with you. I pray, God, that you would shine a light on us and show us, Lord, if we need to change something or if we need to do something differently, God, if we have not walked the Christian road, Father, Lord, show us and help us, God, and forgive us and be gracious with us. We know you will be, Father. Lord, if anyone needs prayer, I pray, God, that they come up front, Jesus, and that you honor those prayers and that you hear their prayers. I pray, God, that people will take a couple of minutes, Lord, that they will ask for forgiveness of any sin that may be in their heart, that they'll take the communion, the, the body and blood represented in the, in the bread and the juice, and that they'll remember that you died for us even while we were sinners. God, that you love us so immensely, Father. And Lord, I pray that you bless any non-believers, any new people in this room, that you would just keep your hand on them and protect them until we meet again, God. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you, God. And it's in your name that we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. I hope you have a great weekend.